Okay, cool. Let's jump right in. Um, so we're going live and we are going live for the second time today. Hello, everyone. Very, very nice to be here. Uh, once again, this is live stream number 79 for the data on Kubernetes community. Uh, we're on a very, very solid streak of lots of content as we get closer to KubeCon. Um, and this this stream, uh, I was talking to, to Chris before we got started. Particularly excited about this one for a couple different reasons that we're going to get into it. We have a person who's been in the space uh, for a while and on top of it has been approaching it very much on his own um, through having a company. He's gonna explain a little bit about that before getting into data stacks. And what does that mean? It means lots of close contact with end users, really understanding what makes them tick, what they're willing to pay for, uh, the kind of difficulties and frustrations that they're having and what different technological answers uh, can provide to that. What kind of value can be provided there? Um, and speaking of value, lovely segue. If you would like to add some value to our KubeCon event, our co-located event that we'll be doing on October 12th, I will happily leave the CFP here in the, in the chat so you can take a look at that. Um, if you wanna give a talk, the two criteria are, you need to be speaking about working with stateful workloads on Kubernetes. That can be in, in a variety of different ways. If you have questions, you can ask us. Um, and the other criteria is really bringing in the end user focus, right? Uh, we wanna make sure that it's not just vendor pitches, we really want to be thinking about how these technologies and solutions are being applied in real life circumstances. What are the use cases? What's the impact that's being generated? So that's all I got to say for, for now to get started. As usual, you can feel free to leave uh, your questions in the chat. Um, and that being said, I'd like to introduce our speaker today, who is Chris Bartholomew, who's joining us from Canada. Welcome, Chris. Very nice to have you with us. Pleasure to be here, Bart. Good stuff. So Chris, can you just give a little bit of background about you know, how you got into this whole data space and then maybe we can build this into you know, how you ended up starting your own company? Sure, I, I'm, I've been working sort of in the messaging streaming uh, space for a long time now, since um, you know, mid 2000s. I worked for a company here in Ottawa, Canada, where I live that built uh, purpose-built purpose hardware that did this kind of stuff for very low latency, high performance. Um, and, you know, over the years, you know, new technologies come along. And one thing that I was always intrigued with sort of in the later part of the time I was working there was what Kubernetes and how we could leverage Kubernetes. And it was something that I was trying to get started at my previous, uh, my previous job. Um, and, you know, there was a little bit of traction there, but I, I really felt that Kubernetes was, was going to be in a key way of, of deploying applications and sort of become the, you know, operating system of the enterprise. Um, and so when I, you know, I quit that job and I set up to build my own company, I decided to make a strategic bet on Kubernetes. Everything was going to be on Kubernetes, including, um, you know, not just the state, stateless stuff, but the stateful stuff. And in, in particular, my, my idea was to build a SaaS on Apache Pulsar, which is an emerging competitor to Apache Kafka. It has a lot of the same capabilities as Kafka, and it has a lot of other really cool capabilities on top of Kafka. Um, so when I went to approach that, I said, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to run Pulsar on Kubernetes. Um, and so, you know, there was some beginnings there, but, you know, I had to build that out and get that working, figuring out how, how to get it to work in all the different cloud providers all and right. for different customer use cases. With that in mind, what were some of those challenges when you, I mean, when you initially started, I'd be like, all right, I'm going to put Pulsar on Kubernetes. What year are we talking about? What resource did you have access to? What was that process like? Yeah, so this was uh, early 2019. I uh, started looking at that. So the open source project, the Pulsar open source project had sort of a series of, of um, Helm charts, a uh, Helm chart that had uh, some of this stuff figured out. Uh, so I sort of started with that as my starting point. And it's like, I, I needed to get this running in the different cloud providers. And so, because I'm going to provide a SaaS, uh, Pulsar is multi-tenant. So I wanted to be able to provide a tenant level access uh, to multiple customers uh, from the various cloud providers. Um, so the first start, I started from the, uh, you know, the, the Helm chart that the project provided. And then I ended up you know, making my own version of that, that had a lot of extra features and functionality in it that we needed to get working. You know, on, when we talk about data that, you know, the first challenge you always have to deal with is, you know, how do you do with storage um, and, and across the different cloud providers? That's, you know, one of the primary differences between AWS, Azure, and GCP is what does the storage look like? How does the storage work? What kind of performance characteristics do you get on the storage? Uh, you know, what you want to do there. Um, and so, you know, we primarily went with, uh, you know, uh, shared disks or EBS volumes uh, and found that we could make a compelling, you know, performance and, and, and cost trade-off there. And also reliability. I, th I think, you know, there's a huge reliability um, 
uh, aspect to using you know shared volumes or uh, as opposed to local local disks on on you know say worker nodes. Mm -hmm. Now you touched briefly as well, and I'm sure you'll maybe get to this a little bit later once we sure. start checking out your deck. But yep. um, the capabilities that you know, some of the things that, that that Pulsar might offer that maybe some folks aren't aware of, as opposed to Kafka. Because as as I mentioned before, we got started. Yep. We have had a few talks about Kafka. We've talked about Kafka. You know, streaming um, previously. Uh, you know, in the in the in the last ten years, hearing about Kafka's uh, the the added value to, to big data. And, and curiously enough as well too, perhaps you can give a little bit of background about the, the naming of your, of your previous company. Um, that is something with Kafka as well. Yeah, so anyway, so, so just enlighten us a little bit about that before we get into the presentation. Sure. So, I mean, some of the, you know, like Pulsar came out of Yahoo, you know, five years or so after Kafka. So the, the original creators of Pulsar certainly knew what Kafka was and, and, and they had evaluated it for their particular needs. And they were trying to build an internet scale messaging um, backbone for the use, uh, you know, for the use of Yahoo to support a number of services like Yahoo Mail, Yahoo Finance, those kind of things. And so they had a number of requirements around that. And they, at the time, and this is like, you know, uh, several years ago now, um, 2016, you know, Kafka didn't quite meet all the needs that they had. Um, one of the things they wanted to do is not only did they want to do streaming where, you know, we have a continuous stream of data uh, at high volume. They also need to do sort of your traditional queuing type use cases where I'm going to put a message in a queue. I'm going to extract that one message. I'm going to consume it. We're going to do some work and then we're going to act it. But those kind of use cases are actually not that easy to do in Kafka because it's, it's built for high volume, high performance. Not, you know, we have, you know, in, in my company, we dealt with uh, several customers that have, use cases where I'm going to put a, um, a job into the queue. I'm going to then pick it up with a machine learning algorithm and process that for two hours. And then I'm going to acknowledge the message. Um, sounds like a pretty simple use case. It's actually not that easy to do in Kafka because it's not built for that. Um, there's a lot of other, you know, there's other performance advantages uh, in if you need to do low latency, low consistent latency was one of the other um, motivating factors. And I'll talk about it later, sort of how uh, the Pulsar project leverages uh, Apache Bookkeeper project uh, for a distributed storage layer um, that makes it, that gives it improved uh, latency and uh, uh, read-write separation uh, when, you, when you use that as opposed to Kafka, which writes to the broker's local disk or the mounted disk. Um, it has a, a Pulsar separates compute from storage. Uh, which is, you know, often a useful paradigm when you're operating in, in you know, Kubernetes or a cloud, cloud native type uh, setup. If you separate compute from storage, you have a lot more flexibility in what you're doing. And Pulsar architecture, which I'll talk about later, uh, definitely does that. So that's one of the key advantages. The architecture of Pulsar, that separation of compute and storage, the additional use cases that you can run on Pulsar are some of the key features why people are, you know, I see more and more people are adopting or considering Pulsar for, um, for their messaging and streaming needs. Well, that's a pretty good setup. Let's jump into the presentation. Let's get the show on the road. Let's take a sure. look. Yeah. Okay. I'll just share my screen. All right. Which is always challenging. There we go. I know. That's what I'm <laughs> <laughs> Pulsar on Kubernetes is one thing. Sharing a screen on Zoom is totally yeah, different. Yeah, that's to <laughs> the two okay. different types of uh, challenges, right? All right. Cool. Got you now. All right. Let me, uh, now I can uh, get to the window. Okay, uh, quick agenda here. I won't go over this. Uh, we've been, uh, so let me I'll start with the backstory. I touched a bit on this in, um, when um, Bart and I were talking. I worked for 12 years for proprietary messaging streaming company. Uh, one of the last things I did when I was there was I built a SaaS version of their messaging software. Um, so I had some experience in what a, a streaming messaging SaaS looked like. And it's something that I wanted to build myself. So in early 2019, I, I quit my job um, and I built a company. I started a company called, well, which, and, which uh, is still called Kask technically. Uh, original name for the company was Kafka-esque, um, sort of as a, as a, you know, an ode to Kafka. It's like, it's like Kafka, but different. Um, and, you know, that name, as you can see, we've changed it over time. You know, <laughs> some people loved it and some people hated it, um, which is sometimes a good thing for marketing. Uh, you know, to, to also be controversial or, or uh, you know, uh, and, and have that little bit of hate, it, it drives interest. It's, but over it's, time, it's, we just, you know, it's easy, it's easy <laughs> to remember and hard to forget. I think yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we, we ended up shortening it to just Kask, uh, remove some of the letters in there um, uh, for, um, 
just it is also the other downside to it. It was creating some confusion about whether we offer Kafka uh, when we actually offer Pulsar. So anyway, we, we uh, settled to build this company and I wanted to build this business uh, where we provide a SaaS, as I mentioned earlier, um, powered by Apache Pulsar. Um, and as I mentioned earlier as well, my bet was on Kubernetes. I used Kubernetes. I'd seen the power of Kubernetes. Um, so what I wanted to do is I said, everything we're going to do is going to be based on Kubernetes. Um, the control plane aspect of, you know, how you on, uh, when a user comes in and they sign up and, uh, you know, how we configure them on the, on the uh, Pulsar clusters and all that, the control plane part, you know, this was pretty easy. We did this uh, also and based on Kubernetes and we built a continuous, um, you know, continuous delivery pipeline uh, using GitLab. Uh, which has you know nice tooling for this to actually automatically deploy your application um, to um, to your Kubernetes cluster. Um, the data plane part, the Apache Pulsar part, you know we were also going to run in Kubernetes on the cloud providers. Uh, you know we wanted to do touch in regions around the world so everyone could have access, um, and also on all all the three major cloud providers. Um, as I mentioned earlier, at the same at the at the time when I started, there was only some simple Helm charts uh, part of the project. And that became the basis for you know, Helm charts that we still use today um, as, as I go through the history here um, uh, at what we used at Kesk. And now we use a data stacks um, uh, for uh, deploying Pulsar uh, in, in cloud and on-premise uh, for different customers. So you know, my main challenge, you know, the control plane part, the stateless part's easy. How do I get Pulsar to run on Kubernetes and, and have it run reliably? So just backing up a little bit, what is Apache Pulsar for people that, that may not know about it? Um, it originated from Yahoo. It was a project inside of Yahoo. It was donated to the uh, Apache Software Foundation in 2016. Um, it's a horizontally scalable uh, distributed system, uh, similar to Kafka. There's a lot of similarities if you're familiar with Kafka. It depends on Apache Zookeeper for metadata store, configuration management, leadership election, those kind of things. Uh, uh, Pulsar are exactly the same as Kafka in that way. Uh, there's a broker, a Pulsar broker, similar to a Kafka broker, uh, but Pulsar has an additional layer, as I mentioned earlier, for storage uh, provided by Apache Bookkeeper, which is a separate project that's used in various different um, other projects as a base. Um, it's a distributed log, a, a distributed storage kind of uh, project, which I'll talk more about later. Um, Pulsar, every message that or event or, what, or, or whatever you want to call it that you send to Pulsar, uh, um, and this is different than Kafka, actually, uh, every message you send to it is persisted to disk before it's acknowledged back to the, to the producer. Um, in, in Kafka, what happens is periodically messages are persisted to disk and there's, it's a configurable amount, you know, and you can get it to, to happen very frequently and, and per message, but by default, Kafka will only persist messages to disk on a periodic basis. What this means is that in a failure scenario, um, you can lose messages um, on a particular node. Of course, there's replication factors to sort of compensate for that. But one thing with Pulsar, because it persists to disk, um, you know, we can lose we can lose a data center or we can lose an AZ. Uh, and, um, you know, the last message that was acknowledged, we can be sure that's actually on the disk. Um, like Kafka, Pulsar has been, you know, built for and works well in high throughput, uh, low latency uh, use cases. Um, there's some benchmarks out there and I ran some myself just to, you know, get a feel for this. You know, one thing, I, you know, if you run these benchmarks, you can see, um, you know, Pulsar's latency is consistent because it always does the same thing. You know, it sends the message, it flushes it to disk. The path is always the same. The latency you get is consistent over time. Kafka, you'll see like spikes in latency depending on what it's doing at different times. Um, Pulsar combines, you know, streaming capabilities where you can send messages very quickly, you know, like click streams. Uh, for example, you can collect all of those, aggregate them. You can do pub sub where you're gonna publish a message and you're gonna have multiple subscribers. Um, and you're going to fan that message out to multiple subscribers. And as I was talking about earlier, it can also do a queuing patterns. You know, these are kind of traditional patterns. Think, you know, maybe SQS, simple queue, queuing patterns. Um, you know, doing those at high speed and with high, high scalability, you can do that in Pulsar as well. These things are challenging to do in, um, in Kafka. Um, it has a long list of built-in functionality, uh, has built-in multi-tenancy, has built-in geo-replication for disaster recovery or for worldwide distribution, uh, has a built-in schema registry. Uh, it can do something called tiered storage where we offload messages. 
uh, to uh, you know S3 or some other blob store uh, to reduce costs, uh, which is which is important. Um, and it can also you can build functions that uh, you know, streaming functions uh, like, uh, that will operate per message. This whole framework is built right into the Pulsar project. Um, you can do a lot of this stuff, you know, with Kafka. Multi-tenancy is really really hard to do in Kafka, um, but a lot of this other stuff you can do. But it's separate projects. Uh, it's separate and sometimes commercial projects products. Uh, you have to kind of cobble it all together. With Pulsar, it all comes in one in one project, one one container. So that's a bit of an overview of what what is Pulsar. Diving in a is, sorry, sorry, Chris, but is this the yep. part of the interview where I can put the link to your the book that you wrote? <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I did. I wrote a book comparing a, a Pulsar and Kafka uh, for O'Reilly, an ebook. It's a short book. Um, yeah. Um, there's a lot more detail in there than than no, I just, no, but just, there, I yeah. think we're, we're stimulating interest on this, so it's good to be able to reference. <laughs> Um, I, I don't have it handy, but I can get it for you unless you have it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Excellent. Keep going. Fantastic. Okay. okay. Uh, just a little bit more uh, detail on the architecture of Pulsar, just so you can understand what we're doing in, in, uh, when, we, when we run it in Kubernetes. As I mentioned, there's ZooKeeper. Uh, you, know, you have to have uh, multiple ZooKeeper nodes for config and metadata storage. Um, and then the broker layer, which is the compute layer, uh, you can see producers and consumers only connect to the broker. Uh, and the broker handles all the movement of the messages, but the storage of the messages, right? Because we're going to persist these messages. We want to make sure that uh, we guarantee the delivery of at least once delivery of messages, um, which is what Pulsar does and Kafka and other kind of persistence uh, messaging systems do. Uh, we're going to have to save that somewhere. We're going to have to put it on disk somewhere ultimately. Uh, and Pulsar uses this whole separate layer uh, called Bookkeeper in this project. Um, and the interesting thing, thing about Bookkeeper is it's a, you, you can you can store a, a topic you know that's the, the main uh, 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 construct that we use in Kafka and Pulsar is so we have a topic it has a bunch of messages a bunch of events in it uh, in Kafka those are all written to a, the broker itself has has mounted disks we write that to the broker disk in in Pulsar what we do is we take the messages and we group them up into segments or ledgers in bookkeeper terminology and we're going to write those not to a single uh, server we're going to distribute those across multiple servers called bookies in the bookkeeper project. Um, so this means that like for a single topic, no, no one server has the entire uh, um, set of data that's associated with the topic. You get a lot of advantages with this um, because the failure of a single node uh, means that doesn't mean that we lose an entire topic. We just lose a segment of it. And because we're doing replication, we're just losing one of the many copies that we have of a, of a node. This makes a lot of failure scenarios and recovery scenarios much easier to handle in Bookkeeper. It also makes it easy for you to expand uh, Bookkeeper. Uh, you can add more nodes and it just starts adding those segments onto those new storage. There's no, there's no storage nodes. There's no need to move segments around or data around, no re rebalancing, uh, that kind of stuff doesn't have to happen. Uh, it's all sort of handled for you automatically. Um, you can also stripe writes across multiple bookies. If you have a lot, if you have a really large data volumes, you can have multiple bookies and uh, you can sort of take these segments uh, and you know we can, if we have a replication factor of three, we can spread those three writes across five, six, seven, eight, uh, bookies so then we can get the advantage of the striping uh, the parallelism of that so we can we can push a high volume of data uh, into the bookkeeper project um, uh, as the base for for pulsar diving down a little bit of bookie and i often call book bookkeeper the secret sauce to pulsar um, on the bookkeeper itself there's actually two disks or that's the recommended configuration you have two disks you have a journal disk and you have a ledger's disk. Um, the journal disk is where all messages are written. They first are written to the journal disk and they're F-synced, they're synced to the physical disk for every message that comes in. Um, that's your write path. If you look at a journal disk uh, in, on a live system, you see that there's almost no reads going on in the journal disk because it's just a write ahead log uh, to make sure that we have all the messages written persistently uh, to storage so that we're, we can recover from any failure scenario. At the same time as the message comes in and it gets, it's getting prepared and it's getting put, putting on the journal, we put it in memory, we reorganize a little bit and then it gets written to the ledger's disk. And the ledger's disk is where it gets read from. So, you know, separation of input and output, uh, the journal disk is write only, 
the ledger's disk is as it has to be written to, of course, because we're going to write it there as well. Um, but it's where the messages get stored for long-term storage, and any kind of reading that we need to do uh, comes from the ledger disk. Um, you know, so the advantage of this is if you have high write throughput coming in to your bookie, and you have sort of a, an event where you have to do a lot of catch-up reads. Uh, from an old, from a topic that's sort of maybe uh, the consumer's been down for a couple hours, the, it doesn't impact the right because it's a separate path. Um, so you can do um, you can maintain performance under various sort of failure conditions uh, in uh, in Pulsar because of this bookkeeper architecture. And that's what I was talking about earlier. Is like a lot of people see look at Pulsar and they go, "This is a really good architecture." Um, you know, there's a lot of advantages to the way it was built, um, and of course the creators of Pulsar had the advantage of you know, seeing what others have done in this space and kind of taking the best parts and, and you know, making them better. You know, they, you know, they reused a lot of the functionality or the concepts uh, or they used reused Bookkeeper, but the Pulsar team also made lots of contributions to Bookkeeper to get it to this level and to make it work really well with Pulsar. So when you look at it, one of the things that it really jumped out to me is like Pulsar uh, running in Kubernetes, right? It's like, you know, everyone knows, you, you know, stateless applications, that's the way to go. That's, you know, the first generation of Kubernetes applications are stateless. So the, the nice thing about Pulsar is part of it is, you know, part of it is stateless. It's not, it's, it's not all stateful. The brokers themselves, right? As you, you can see in the diagram that I had prior, the brokers are stateless, you know, and because they're stateless, we can scale them up and down arbitrarily all however we want, right? And when you scale them up or down, um, you know, they can have different load on them. And Pulsar has a built-in load balancer, which monitors, continuously monitors the memory and the CPU uh, and the network usage on the, um, on the brokers. And it'll redistribute the topic load for you. So this is all automatic. Um, you don't have to, there's no uh, rebalancing manual, uh, manual intervention required at all. Um, so this means you can scale up and scale down. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really good this way. And, you know, as I mentioned before, we, we separate compute from storage. So depending on what your use case is, you may need a lot of compute, but not a lot of storage, right? If you're not actually uh, storing the messages for long-term, uh, you just need to process the message and get it out quickly. I have, you know, I work with customers these days who have, you know, tens of thousands of messages per second. They produce that and they consume it almost immediately, except for in failure scenarios. So we don't need a whole lot of storage for those use cases. We may need a lot of brokers, uh, because they have a lot of clients, a lot of connections and, and, and whatnot, but we don't need a whole lot of bookkeeper storage uh, capability. And so you, the advantage of Pulsar is you can kind of optimize the uh, resource usage because of this. Um, you know, you can easily scale up a brokers up and down as you want. Like I have the example here, the familiar kubectl cube scale uh, command. That's as easy as it is to move the number of brokers in your Pulsar cluster up and down. Um, and you know you can you know they say make that match your use case and make the storage layer, which you know is usually a very expensive part of your uh, of your deployment. Right, disks are expensive, especially if you're you know, have them uh, for the entire uh, you know month and they're large disks because they have good performance. They're not cheap, right? Um, you know, so if you can optimize the storage layer uh, down to what your minimum set is, and you can scale out the the serving layer, you have a much more interesting. Um, uh, in much more uh, cost-effective way of running uh, your messaging system. Um, brokers are stateless. That's great. Obviously, we have to have stateful things happening here. Uh, you know, Zookeeper, which is common with Kafka and lots of other projects, uh, is obviously stateful. It runs as a stateful set when we when we run this in uh, in Kubernetes, uh, backed by uh, persistent volume claims (PVCs). Um, you know, and, and so Zookeeper is pretty standard. Lots of people have sort of got that running in uh, uh, in Kubernetes. Uh, when we when we do Bookkeeper, which is something that's particular to Pulsar, you know, we have to have two PVCs: one for the journal, uh, one for the ledger disk. Those those are typically different sized. Um, the journal can be very small because the journal is, is really just a write-ahead log, so it keeps a small portion of the data. Um, and once it's committed to the ledger's disk, we don't need it anymore. Um, uh, you know, it's, but we can we can scale both of those things. So we, we you know we scale both the bookkeeper and the zookeeper uh, horizontally. Up is easy and usually down is sometimes not so easy. Um, you know, zookeeper as many people probably know require odd number of pods, uh, three, five, or seven. 
which can sometimes be a challenge if you have an even number of uh, availability zones in your cloud provider um, and you're trying to account for failure, failure scenarios. Uh, bookkeeper, though, you can use any number of uh, bookkeeper nodes. You can use one, two, three, four, five. It doesn't have to be uh, an odd number. Um, you can, uh, but you, usually you start with at least three uh, for a replication factor of two. Uh, then we can tolerate the failure of one of them. So one of the key challenges to write, running Pulsar uh, in, in Kafka too, because they have the same behavior here in, in Kubernetes is external access. Kubernetes is great if you want to do internal access. You know, you have uh, local DNS, you have local D uh, name resolution, you have local IP addresses, and, and that's great. If you're going to build a SaaS, uh, you know, you're not going to let people have access to your internal Kubernetes cluster. We have to provide external access uh, so people can connect on public IP addresses to your service um, and use TLS and these kind of things, right? So that was a major challenge um, is getting uh, external access to Pulsar, and this is why, because um, in Pulsar, a topic is owned by a single broker. Uh, so uh, if you have three brokers, one of those, and you're publishing or subscribing to, or consuming from a topic, one of those brokers is gonna own the topic. And you have to connect to the right one. Um, and if you connect to the wrong one, that's not a real big problem uh, if you have uh, in, in the local case, because Pulsar will say, hey, this is the wrong one. Uh, in this response, you do this. So the first, the first uh, protocol message is a lookup. Say, okay, I wanna, I wanna publish or subscribe to this topic, um, and then Pulsar will respond and say, either yes, that's me if you got lucky, or it'll respond, no, that's not me. Go talk to this other broker. Um, and every broker has the full knowledge of this. It's actually stored in Zookeeper, so every broker knows who owns the, all the topics at any time. Right, But if you think about this model, what it requires is that every client needs to be able to talk directly to every single broker. Um, and this is not, a, from an external access perspective, this is not a model that Kubernetes is very um, supportive of. Right, For Kubernetes, your standard access model in the cloud Kubernetes installation would be, you know, I would add a load balancer that would then um, you know, provide my external access and then I would to us, you know, usually a set of stateless pods, uh, you know, round, round robin deliver those messages, those connections to those pods. Um, you can't do that with Pulsar because the underlying broker pod that's running inside the Kubernetes cluster, the client would need to be able to talk to it, but that pod is running with a private IP address um, or a private DNS name from within the cluster. Um, so this is a challenge. And one of the first things I had to sort of get my head wrapped around is how do we, how do we deal with this in the SaaS? How are we gonna make this work? And it's also a problem too for other customers that I have that, that we, we do internal, we do deploys for them on their internal cloud um, or on their, on, in their own cloud account. You know, for the separation purposes, some people don't wanna run their uh, applications on the same Kubernetes cluster as, uh, as Pulsar is running on. Also because you know, we remotely access these things. So just for security reasons. So they have the same problem where they, you know, how do we right, basically run Kubernetes cluster that is just Pulsar and have maybe our applications running on a different Kubernetes cluster or maybe just running on VMs and things like that. Um, so it's, it's an it's a important problem that we had to solve. But the good news about that is uh, the Pulsar team thought about this problem right from the very beginning. In fact, if you look, um, you know, there's like most open source projects, um, you know, there's a bunch of improvement pr uh, proposals that happen. People put out proposals and then there's discussion and then it gets implemented or it doesn't. Uh, the very first uh, uh, proposal, uh, um, PIP, it's called Pulsar Improvement Proposal, uh, was the Pulsar proxy um, that, was ever, that was ever written. The Pulsar proxy, enables uh, remote access to Pulsar through a proxy layer that is stateless. Um, uh, and this makes it very easy actually to uh, expose Pulsar to, you know, in Kubernetes to external connections, any kind of external connections. And we use this extent, like we use this in all our Kubernetes deployments of Pulsar pretty much, um, e even if they have internal um, connections because sometimes you you want to have external access for for uh, uh, debugging purposes. Um, the Pulsar proxy understands the Pulsar proxy protocol enough so that when you connect to the proxy, 
it does the lookup and is able to understand, oh, figure out which broker it should connect to. Now the, the, the proxy runs inside the Kubernetes cluster, right? So it has access to all the local IP addresses, all the local DNS names, and then it can make the decision about which broker to ultimately connect to. And then it, you know, after it does that sort of negotiation and figures out this is the broker that I should be talking to, then it just becomes a simple like reverse proxy, TCP proxy. Um, so it handles this part, it sort of isolates the, the end client from having to know which broker they're talking to. Uh, the end client talks to the proxy exclusively. We can um, have multiple uh, proxies because they're stateless. Um, Pulsar proxies, they're stateless. You can connect any one. So we put a load balancer in front of them. Uh, and the, you know, as the new connections come in, it just picks one. Uh, and then that proxy will handle the, the, the forwarding of the, the traffic for the duration of the connection. The connection drops for whatever reason, uh, you know, it may go through a different proxy next time, but that's not a problem. So when we run uh, Pulsar and Kubernetes, as I mentioned, there was Helm charts available. Uh, we still use Helm today, um, you know, in all our deployments for Pulsar. Uh, I, I, I personally think it fits well with sort of the paradigm of Helm, you know, being able to uh, upgrade and roll back um, you know, personally, when I'm debugging things and trying to figure out stuff, the fact that I can, um, you know, Helm <clears throat> generates manifests that are consistent and I know what they are, but I also can make um, temporary changes to the manifests directly, which is something and I'll talk, in an operator uh, world is hard to do. Um, I think it's very powerful and I think it works really well. Um, and there's not a lot, because Pulsar scales, you know, relatively easily, brokers and proxies are, are stateless. They scale, you know, fabulously. Uh, and, and Zookeeper scales okay uh, up and down if you configure it prep properly. And so does uh, so does Bookkeeper. So, uh, you know, we're, we're like on the verge of like, you know, perfect fit for uh, um, uh, a Kubernetes application. It's very cloud native or Kubernetes native. Um, so all we really need is something to manage the complexity of all the, the manifests, which is what Helm is great at. Um, so that early Helm chart that we started with um, back at um, uh, back from the open source project, as, as I mentioned, has gone through. And I, I didn't really talk about this, but you know, in late 2020, uh, Kesk, my company, was acquired by DataStax, um, and you know, we rolled we rolled all of that in, and now we have our DataStax version of the Pulsar Helm chart. This is you know a variation of this. This started as the same Helm chart that we use in production at Kesk. Uh, and uh, we'll talk a little more about it later. At DataStax, we're building a new uh, a new service, a new SaaS powered by Apache Pulsar, which is called Astra Streaming. All three of these things, you know, the native Helm, the the, the not all two of these things, the the Kesk service that still is running a little bit today, the new service that's coming out from DataStax, it all is built on on the back of these these Helm charts. Um, and we've over time added a quite a bit of uh, you know. Uh, functionality to the charts to make it easy to deploy uh, and handle a bunch of functionality. You know, it's an umbrella chart. It embeds the cert manager chart. It embeds uh, the Cube Prometheus stack for us to get Prometheus and Grafana um, and you know, um, uh, Alert Manager. All of that in there. We run the entire, you know, the entire monitoring stack and everything uh, from the Helm chart uh, when we deploy it. Uh, sort of one big package. Um, as I talked about a little bit earlier. You know, an operator, a lot of people would say, oh, a lot of people ask me, it's like, well, do you have an operator? Do you use an operator for Pulsar? Um, and, you know, operator would be nice, but I think the main reason to have an operator is when you can't do uh, things in a way that's native to Kubernetes or Helm. Uh, that's the native tooling. It's, it, you know, you need to shut something down in the process of, of scaling it up or down or doing an upgrade. Um, and and that, none of that is necessary for Pulsar. So, um, you know, I, I don't see a compelling reason to add an operator uh, to this, uh, to Pulsar, to run Pulsar in Kubernetes, because you don't really need it. Uh, and there are things, like I mentioned before, where I find it's when the pulse, when the operator has control of the, of the manifests, then you have, you know, you can't make small changes and, de you know, do debugging and that kind of stuff, which is important for, for me anyway, as you know, we're, we're operators of Pulsar and, you know, we get into complex situations that we have to look at. Sorry, since you are talking about Helm, and you know yep. earlier that we had the, this week we had a streaming uh, live stream about different kinds of tools, 
And there was yep. a brief discussion about Helm versus Customize. Have you ever tried working with Customize in Pulsar? Uh, I have done a little bit of work with Customize. I, I still prefer Helm. Uh, it has more rich uh, templating language. You know, you can do a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, I find that, uh, and, and, and I use Helm much more extensively, so I am biased, but the little bit of uh, exposure I've had to Customize, I, I found that, you know, it, it's too simplistic. I can't do some of the things that I want to do uh, with Customize. Um, you know, it, it, it generates manifests but it doesn't have that that rich programming. Or, you know, you can do a, you can basically do anything you want uh, in in Helm through um, uh, helper functions and things like that. So um, it, there, maybe I'm not enough power enough user of Customize, uh, but uh, I find that Helm is much more flexible. Fair enough. Awesome. Um, so just a little tour here of sort of what it looks like uh, with uh, Pulsar running. Uh, in this case, it's in the GCP cluster. Um, you know, we have a stateful set for the bookkeepers, you know, bookkeeper one, zero, one, and two, uh, you know, uh, broker deployment, uh, uh, three node broker deployment here. We also sometimes run brokers as stateful sets. Um, and the reason for that is not because they are stateful. Um, it's because we need stable names for them. Uh, there's some features in Pulsar that because Pulsar started as, you know, you know pre-Kubernetes, um, make some assumptions about, you know, having a fixed name for a, a particular broker. Um, if you're not using those features, I prefer to use a deployment. Uh, if we are using those features, then we'll, we'll change, and the Helm chart supports us, we can change the broker to a stateful set deployment. It's almost the same. We don't mount any volumes. Uh, or, uh, all we do is you know, we have uh, uh, fixed names, broker zero, one, and two in, the, in this case. Um, we have a proxy deployment. Uh, similarly, you know, stateless proxy deployment, and we have a Zookeeper um, stateful set. Uh, for all of these things, you know, when we run the Helm chart and we run in production, we use host anti-affinity rules in Kubernetes to ensure that none of these components run on the same node. Um, and if uh, if we are if we're doing multi-zone deployments, multi-AZ deployments in clouds. Uh, we will uh, use zone anti-affinity, especially it's not as important if you have like one node per zone because you pretty well, it's the, it reduces to the same thing. But, um, you know, if you have multiple nodes, you have two, three nodes per zone, you don't want all your, uh, all your bookkeepers to sort of crowd up into one, into one zone. So you also will use, you will also use node zone anti-affinity in those cases to make sure there's a nice even distribution of the bookkeepers across the different zones. Um, one other thing that we do is in the Helm chart, and I found it's very, very powerful. Um, you know, when you start up Pulsar, uh, there's kind of an order of operations. There's a bunch of dependencies here. Uh, and one of the things that I did when I first, when, that, that wasn't supported in the original Helm charts is something I added, was extensive use of init containers. Not to do a lot of initialization, but just to coordinate the bring up of the pods. Um, everything depends on Zookeeper. Uh, so there's really no sense of bringing up any of the other pods unless Zookeeper is up and running. Um, you know, and Bookkeeper depends on, uh, the broker depends on Bookkeeper and the proxy depends on the broker. There's this whole dependency chain. Um, so what we've done is we, we use like simple scripts, uh, you know, inside an init container uh, that will uh, pull for various conditions to not bother starting uh, a uh, pod until its, its dependencies are started and running correctly. Um, you know, first we make, you know, if you do a Helm install of one of our, of our Helm chart, you're going to see zookeepers are going to come up first and everything else is going to just be waiting and admit, um, you know, until zookeeper is up, there's no sense in starting anything else. Um, there's actually some initial uh, configuration that needs to be done in zookeeper, which gets applied by a job. And then once that job is, has been um, run, then, uh, you know, bookkeeper comes up, it waits for that zookeeper config to be applied. The broker waits for the bookkeepers to be up and the proxy waits for... So we do this to have nice uh, orchestrated kind of bring up. Otherwise, what you get, you know, in the past where you'd have these, you know, these dependency components would be just crashing, you know, and they get in the crash loop back offs uh, because it takes a little while, especially if you're provisioning uh, volumes and things, which I'll talk about later for these. You know, it can take a while to bring up Zookeeper and if you have a lot of bookkeepers... And then your, your brokers are in back in crash loops. It looks like a disaster, right? So we use init containers to, to sort of uh, consistently bring up everything. Uh, it's also great, actually, uh, 
I remember now the main driver for this was for unit testing or like doing um, uh, kind of testing. Because if you go into crash loop back off, then it, you know it's non-predictable how long it's going to take things to come up because it's in the back off state. Um, so I wanted to have a nice orderly startup so that you know we can, within a fixed amount of time, be sure that either it came up or it didn't come up. Uh, and then we can run some tests after that. So that's, I think, important part and something to look at, I think, for um, not just you know stateful applications, but applications that have dependencies on other applications or, or uh, pods in this case. So uh, as far as uh, persistent volume claims, uh, as I mentioned, we have uh, stateful sets for Zookeeper and Bookkeeper. Um, you know, I'm, I'm mostly use uh, cloud disks for the PVCs. If I, 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 whenever I can, I do. And the only reason not to use it is for performance reasons or if I'm not in a cloud provider. Uh, the advantage, the, to me, the huge advantage of using uh, cloud disks for PVCs is that they're, they have their own life cycle. And so you can lose the node, uh, but the disks persist after that. And then uh, the disks themselves and most cloud providers have very high um, you know, durability. So the odds of losing the data on those disks is quite low. And if you remember, Bookkeeper flushes data to the disks every time it does it right. So we have a really high probability of, or really low probability, extremely low probability of losing any data in these in these um, cases. And if you do have problems with your worker nodes and things, you just spin up a new worker node and you mount the disk and away you go. Um, if you if you have you know local volumes attached in your worker nodes, and you know sometimes we do this, obviously you have to deal with the failure of a node. You can also lose the disk contents and then you have to re-replicate things and, and whatnot. Um, you know unless you unless you can't, I would always recommend using cloud disks. Uh, or, or if you're on-premise, some kind of a, uh, a project that delivers this kind of capability where you can provision a volume uh, dynamically and you can um, it, it has its own life cycle independent of the worker node. Uh, as I mentioned before, there's two different disks on the, on the bookkeeper. You can see we generate a journal disk for the bookkeeper. And I think I said this before, it can be pretty small. Uh, you know, we can, you know, 25, 50 gigabyte is usually enough for that. The reason why you might not want to go quite that low, even though you can, is that you know it's changing now with some of the GP3 uh, volumes in uh, in AWS and in some of the other cloud providers. But typically, those small disks don't have very good performance uh, parameters. Uh, so you want to maybe make it a little bit bigger to get the higher performance because the journal has heavy writes. Um, so you do want to have a fairly performant disk there, uh, but you don't have a lot of storage requirements. Uh, and then the ledger disk would be the one that we would, you know, be a large, you know, a large size. An example setup would be, you know, a 250 gig journal disk and a four terabyte uh, ledger disk, which would give us, a, you know, big storage requirement, a big storage capability there. Um, and then Zookeeper, Zookeeper disks uh, need to be, you know, don't need to be terribly large. Uh, because everything in Zookeeper memory is also on disk, and there's some snapshots, uh, some, so there's a little bit of amplification there. But um, you know, you can get with sort of you know smallish size disks too with Zookeeper. Compared to Kafka, uh, and you know, you hear a lot of horror stories about Zookeeper and Kafka. I mean, uh, the usage of Pulsar's Pulsar's usage of Zookeeper is is, is minimal, so it's not it's not constantly uh, connecting and, and getting data from Zookeeper. So the load it puts on Zookeeper is relatively small. Um, so you don't need monstrous Zookeeper setups uh, to, to back a uh, Pulsar uh, cluster. Um, and you know, for, if there's any kind of, there's a couple of things you want to tune probably on, on disk volumes. I'll just leave them here uh, just that we found that we do a little bit of tuning on the brokers and the, and the bookkeepers for these these volumes because there's a you know extra latency and whatnot as opposed to a locally mounted disk, uh, but we can get good performance out of these. One thing that we use a lot and we rely on, uh, and especially cloud providers when we're running Kubernetes, uh, and it's a great feature, um, is volume expansion. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times volume expansion has gotten me out of trouble. Uh, you know, often you you may get to the point where your bookkeeper, and again, this is a separation of compute and storage. Your bookkeeper node may be have plenty of uh, CPU and memory to handle the load, 
but for whatever reason, storage requirements have increased and now it won't fit the data that you want to store. It won't fit on the disk anymore. Yes, I could spin up a new bookkeeper, but that's kind of expensive, uh, especially if I don't need the compute and storage. Uh, so we take advantage of the uh, ability to resize uh, persistent volumes in all the major cloud providers. Um, and as I mentioned, the, the ledger is, is where we stored most of the data. So that's the one we always end up expanding. Uh, the journals, uh, we don't ever have to expand those. Um, so I would, you know, these are kind of things if you're setting up uh, Pulsar to run, I would recommend on your storage class to make sure that you, you set volume expansion because that needs to be enabled. It hasn't always been, uh, I don't know, I don't think it's a default. I certainly hasn't been the default and maybe the default now, but it hasn't always been, been so you, uh, the default. So you want to allow volume expansion to be true. Um, and then if you're in a multiple AZ zone, AZ kind of setup, uh, you want to make sure that you're using wait for first consumer as well in your storage class. Um, otherwise what will happen, and we've seen this happen a lot is before we started using this consistently, is your um, your your pod and your uh, PVC will get in parallel created, and what ha what will happen is your pod is created in one zone and your PVC is created your PV is created in a different zone, and now they can't mount each other because in most cloud providers you can't cross mount uh, persistent volumes across zones. By using the wait for first consumer, uh, the pod gets uh, scheduled first onto a particular node in a particular zone, then we create the underlying uh, PV. So we don't have this problem of mismatching between zones. If you don't do that, you end up getting into this kind of a, a state where you have to keep recre recreating uh, uh, pods to try to get them to match, like get scheduled onto the zone that you know where that you that you know has the volume on it. Um, you can avoid all of that kind of complication just by using wait for first consumer. Uh, one caveat on this, uh, you know, when you're uh, when you're in running in, in Azure and you need to uh, resize the PVC, it, PVC, it does work. It's just really complicated. Um, it doesn't happen automatically like it does in the other cloud providers. Um, so you have to do this complicated procedure of uh, coordinating all the nodes, restarting pods. You have to make sure that the volume is not mounted. It can't be resized while it is mounted. Um, and the other cloud providers. Um, can, they don't do it while it's mounted, but you just have to restart the pod. In, uh, in Azure, you have to hold the pod unmounted, the uh, volume unmounted for a long time so it can do the resizing, which you know, has this complicated procedure that you have to go through. Um, if you, it, one other thing to note is if you do do volume resizing, um, now, and you're using Helm, right, your stateful set will be specifying the um, size of your uh, persistent volumes. Uh, so if you scale out a new one, it's going to use the old size, right? Say we went from one terabyte to two terabyte. Now we scale out um, all our PV, all our uh, bookkeeper uh, PVCs. We we expanded them to two terabytes, and now they're now we spin up another bookkeeper. Now that one is only going to be one terabyte if you don't do anything else. Uh, there's a way around this. You can you know basically you can delete your stateful set. It's a bit treacherous to do, but you delete it without cascading. The deletes so the pods for the bookkeeper keep running. Then you can update your Helm configuration and do an upgrade. So now your Helm manifest, your Helm generated manifest match uh, what you want uh, with the larger size. Um, so that's something that you know that we've done a few times and been caught uh, with that uh, not set correctly, um, and then having to resize volumes after just spinning them up is a bit of a pain. Uh, tiered storage is, a, is another great feature of Pulsar uh, that we use uh, on a lot of our deployments. Uh, it's not Kubernetes specific, but it, it is an interesting feature. So I thought I'd just throw it in here. Um, obviously, you know, uh, SSDs on in uh, SSDs are expensive, um, and you need them for fast access. But as data, if you're storing data and topics, and it get, the older it gets, uh, the less important it is, and the less you know you need to get a fast retrieval of it. Um, so what Pulsar lets you do is, is configure tiered storage. And that will then say, past a certain amount of time or a certain amount of size, we're gonna take messages that have been stored in a topic and we're gonna take them off of these fast expensive SSDs or cloud volumes. And we're going to push them into uh, blob storage, lower cost blob storage like S3 or Google Cloud Storage. Um, you know, This can significantly reduce the amount of uh, 
the size of the SSDs that you need to maintain to, um, as long as you don't need to retrieve those super quickly, obviously it can be slower to retrieve those messages from S3 than it is from the, from a SSD. Uh, but, you know, if you've waited two days to get the message, the fact that it takes, you know, a few hundred extra milliseconds to get it probably doesn't matter. Um, and this is all completely transparent to the client as a user of Pulsar, the client user of Pulsar. Um, you know, there's no, uh, there, there's no flags or anything. It just happens transparently. The, the messages get pushed off and then when you, to, to the, the tiered storage, and then when you go to retrieve them, they get delivered to the client. They, they you know, get pulled into the broker and then the broker sends them to the client. That's uh, completely transparent. Um, this means Pulsar lets you do things like um, event sourcing where, it, you know, the architecture where uh, you would store all events in your messaging layer. Um, and, you know, all events is, it, you know, can take a lot of space after a while. So um, we have users who will do event sourcing type use cases, and they push the old events off to uh, into S3 um, to reduce costs. Um, as I mentioned, it's, you know, it's a lot cheaper. And also there's usually like tiering in S3. So you can say, well, after a month, I want to move this to a different class of, uh, of, um, of blob storage that's even cheaper as long as you can accept the uh, delays in, uh, in retrieval. Um, running low on time here, I'll, I'll leave a little bit of time for the questions if there are at the end. Uh, we use liveness probes extensively, find this is very helpful. Um, and, and especially when, you know, early days in Pulsar, you know, go back two years, there were some stability issues, robustness issues. I, this saved, uh, you know, saved a bacon, my bacon a few times by having these probes restarting uh, pods or when they're unhealthy. Um, so a little idea about node pools when running Pulsar. Uh, for a small cluster, we will often run uh, a single node pool. We'll run all the Pulsar components in a single node pool. Uh, on six nodes. I like to use six nodes uh, in a standard Kubernetes, uh, you know, cloud de uh, deployment. That'll be, give you um, two nodes per availability zone. I think this gives you, um, you know, really nice redundancy uh, in the event of a failure of a zone or a failure of a node in the zone. Uh, so we will do that and, and using, um, uh, you know, EBS type volumes. This works really well for a small cluster. Um, you get a really, um, you know, for not a, not a lot of cost, a highly, um, you know, functioning and, you know, product and fairly performant uh, Pulsar distribution or Pulsar setup. Uh, for a medium-sized cluster, what we often do is split it. Uh, we'll create two node pools. Um, Bookkeeper with the disks and, and is the most sensitive one for performance. So we'll create a separate node pool for Bookkeeper and run uh, the Bookkeeper nodes, pods on those nodes. And then we'd have another node pool for everything else. Um, and then, you know, if you're getting to a really large deployment, that's when we start breaking out node pools uh, for each major component. A node pool for the zookeepers, a node pool for the, the bookkeepers, a node pool for the brokers, and then a maybe a node pool for everything else, uh, the proxies and some of the other utilities that we use. Um, and in this chart here has some ideas on sort of kind of uh, the sizing, you know, some sample sizing from some production clusters that we uh, manage um, to give you an idea. So the bookkeeper is the, the most uh, memory intensive part uh, of the uh, setup. You know, bookkeeper, broker, then proxy, if you're uh, running this. Uh, upgrades. When we do upgrades, uh, one of the key things uh, that we do uh, for Pulsar is we upgrade each component independently. Um, you know, we do handle this in the, uh, you can see here in the Helm chart, we have individual tags for each component, which is a little bit different than a lot of Helm things where you have like one, uh, one uh, tag for all components or the whole chart. Uh, we broke it up into multiple ones so we can do sort of a staged upgrade, especially for production, high and high volume production environments. We'll upgrade Zookeeper, then make sure everything's all right. Upgrade Bookkeeper, make sure everything's all right. Upgrade the broker, uh, those kind of things, sort of step-by-step, step, you know, in, in a careful way. Um, Talk about just a few of the tools, just in case people are interested in what we what we use a lot. We have something called a Bastion pod, which is a pod that runs inside the, the cluster. This thing is really really useful. Uh, it, it you know we we start that up and we pre-configure it to be able to connect to everything and a bunch of tools on it. A very very useful thing for debugging. I recommend you know if you have any kind of large scale deployments to have something that you know you can you can port for you can forward into um, and. Uh, um, 
you know, run commands and sort of judge the sanity of your, uh, of your uh, deployment. Uh, cube tail, which just tails multiple logs. You see we have multiple pods for everything. That's very common. Um, one, one plugin we use in Helm uh, a lot is the Helm diff plugin. Uh, this is what's key for us as we have multiple people working in the same uh, environment, making updates or, or you know, trying changes and things. Uh, without the Helm diff plugin, you know, we were sort of trampling each other all the time. Uh, at least this, so the Helm diff plugin just compares the manifest that you're generating to the ones that are there and, and shows any differences. And so, uh, you know, when we do a change, you look at the differences, say, is this the set of differences, changes that I expect? And if there's any unexpected changes in there, you're like, well, maybe somebody else has changed something. And that's the time to get on Slack. It's like, hey, who changed this or what's going on? So we use that all the time. Uh, before we started using it and sort of saying thou shalt uh, use Helm diff before you do any kind of Helm change, uh, we had lots of problems. Um, and K9s is a, is a go-to tool. We use that all the time. For, uh, for managing the cluster. Um, and uh, the NodeShell uh, plugin for kube control, which allows you to, to shell directly into the, um, the worker nodes is also helpful. We don't typically expose the worker nodes, so we use that to, to log into them. It's been especially useful um, recently as we've moved to rootless containers in our Pulsar distribution. Um, so we don't have the access to install things ad hoc in, the, in any of the containers. Sometimes you know you have to go into the into the worker node and, and run some commands um, that you can't do otherwise. Um, just to complete the circle, I, I already mentioned this. You know, in late 2020, Kesk was acquired by DataStax. Um, you know, DataStax has a history of supporting Kubernetes and doing a lot of Kubernetes work. Um, you know, one of the you know a couple of the things that you may have heard of is the CAS operator. So it's operator for Cassandra. Um, there's also Kate Sandra, which is uh, it includes the CAS operator. It's like a, um, a full-blown full setup uh, with all the parts you need. It's a lot like our Pulsar Helm chart, actually, where it includes uh, monitoring and other tools, useful tools in the, in the package. Um, you know, those are a couple of projects. And you know, when, when we were talking about whether, well, should we join DataStax or whatnot, you know, the fact that DataStax is obviously behind Kubernetes and building projects on it, you know, to me was a perfect fit. And we're gonna, we have the same kind of strategic, you know, vision of where where things are going and how we should should build. Um, and so that's what we've been doing. Uh, we since we've been part of uh, DataStax, we've released Luna Streaming, which is Apache Pulsar uh, distribution with a, you know, Kubernetes first kind of approaches like, you know, people want to use Pulsar in Kubernetes and that's our primary uh, way of uh, deliver, delivering it to them. And as I mentioned earlier, we're working on Astro Streaming. It's in beta right now, uh, is our SaaS version of Pulsar that's built on Kubernetes. Uh, and it's also integrated with the, uh, the, um, the DataStax Astro DB project product, which is Cassandra as a, as a service. Uh, so you can do Cassandra and Pulsar in the same service all of this is built on Kubernetes, um, and there's more things that uh, you know that you'll hear down the road coming from DataStax and the, and the Kubernetes space. I'll just leave it here. Uh, if anyone uh, wants to uh, check out some more information on on Pulsar itself, uh, there's a nice there's a Slack channel for Pulsar. You can sign up and uh, talk to the community. Very welcoming, uh, and uh, some information on Luna Streaming and Astro Streaming. That's it for me. Good stuff. Very, very complete. Very well-rounded. We can tell that you have written a book about Pulsar. This is abundantly <laughs> clear. If there were any doubts beforehand, it's not just writing a book. You can, you, it's not just, you know, you can walk the walk and not just talk the talk. Having said that, all right, yep. uh, you, you, you gave a very thorough overview of Pulsar and also looking at, you know, um, the differences in capabilities with, with Kafka. If you yep. could improve one capability or feature of Pulsar, what would it be? Improve one one feature or capability. Yeah, um, that is an excellent question. You don't have to answer now. Yeah, yeah, no, sorry. let me think about that. Let me think. Yeah, about yeah, that. no, because we've had we've had you know other other uh, other speakers that get really deep on a specific tool or yeah. uh, a specific database or, or things of, of that nature. I always find it interesting to think about. Okay, like. 
we're at here right now, what's the next level? You know, like it's yeah. really, really good. But if you could just get into this one thing a little bit better, what would that be? Yeah. That's okay. But that's well, like- now no, no, I've, I've come up with it now. Okay, cool. <laughs> well, one of the things, like, like one of the things, especially in, is, you know, I talked about tiered storage, right? And I think that's a powerful, yeah. powerful way to save money and, and do things in, 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 in Right now, it, when you write to disk, it also, you, you know, it, it writes to that ledger disk. I think if we were to, one improvement we could do that would even make it even less expensive is that, you know, we still have that journal disk to capture the message, make sure we have that message for any kind of failure scenario. But if we could write that directly to S3 uh, right away um, and sort of cut the ledger disk out, we could significantly cut the costs. Now, whether we could get the performance we want or not, but I think that would be sort of for cloud native kind of Kubernetes deployments where you have an S3 compatible uh, access either on-premise or that. I think that could be a, a nice way to even reduce the cost and make it easier to run uh, on. Uh, and it also facilitates, uh, I didn't even talk that much about geo-replication. It's like the advantage of having something in a cloud provider like S3 or even, you know, we did a little bit of partnership with uh with storage, which has their own sort of global, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, S3 compatible uh, storage network. You know, you can kind of now, if you switch to another region, you can still access the data uh, because it's in this in this global system. It's not local anymore. So I think there's some interesting things we could do there to, to make Pulsar even more, you know, friendly and uh, work even better in a, in a cloud environment. That, and that's particularly no, that, that's particularly exciting as well too. Thinking as we yeah. live in more and more of a global, you know, society, we have to be taking those things into consideration. As we yeah. have, uh, you know, remote work is expanding, and, and being able to have that access regardless of where you are in the world, that that's a good point to keep in mind. Other stuff to keep in mind because you also mentioned, you know, and and particularly attacking that issue of cost, I find that interesting too because with storage it's no secret that these things can get quite overwhelming quite quickly. And yeah. with that as well, too, before we started the live stream, we were talking a little bit about when talking about Kubernetes and once again, you being the person that was going out and directly talking to, you know, has experience going out and directly talking to end users and say, great, this technology might do a lot of stuff, but what are the costs going to be here and how can it be prepared for that? And that's also why we've had um, live streams with uh, folks from KubeCost that are just specifically focused on, you know, how can we, how can we keep these things under control? But what I wanted to get at is, you know, we do have the the financial cost issue, then we also have the talent cost, right? That, you know, right. how can, and, and so this is what I want, I want to hear your thoughts on is that it's the biggest challenge with Kubernetes, with writing data on Kubernetes right now, you know, stateful workloads, databases, streaming, all these different things. Is the challenge a financial one? Is it a talent gap where there needs to be better specific training? We talked about this also with a uh, with a couple of folks from, from Cockroach that were talking about certification. Should there be some kind of a data on Kubernetes certification? How would you go about doing that? Would that make sense? In your opinion, as someone who's been working on this quite intensively yeah. for a while, how do you see that? And what are the next steps that you think need to happen in order for this to become easier for organizations to see, to understand, and to start doing themselves? Yeah, I think there's definitely, um, you know, you mentioned this, there's sort of a, a knowledge gap there, right? Um, we struggle with like, one of the challenges of, as I mentioned, our, our Pulsar distribution is Kubernetes first, right? So we kind of, you're going to use it and most people will try it and they'll try to deploy it on Kubernetes. And the challenge we have is that folks, a lot of people don't have enough Kubernetes knowledge so that we end up having to try to train them to use Kubernetes before they can even get to our product um, or, or to run a, a something. They don't understand, uh, you know, sort of this, the basic stuff that will fail for you. It's like, well, if you don't have any access to any disks, then you can't you can't deploy this on Kubernetes. You don't have enough memory. You don't have enough CPU. You know what does a pending state mean? You know the number of people have come is like, well, my my pod's in pending state, um, and then they're like, I don't know what to do. Well, you know it's sort of basic mm -hmm. Kubernetes stuff that yeah, you need to understand. Yeah. So I think there is some level of you know like a certification or some training or some you know I think that would be really helpful. It's like these are the standard things that we need to do. These are stateful sets. These are how they work. You know, these are these are the kind of considerations you have to have when you're using those kind of things. So that'd be helpful to make it more accessible to people. Um, you know, uh, I, Kubernetes itself over time, you know, they add features that make some of this, you know, like volume expansion. I, I talked about that. That's a great feature, um, you know, that's native. And I think it makes it more approachable, but you still need to understand what that is. And it's very, you know, very deep. Uh, technical. You can't use that feature unless you kind of understand how it works. And maybe I went into too much detail in my talk, but uh, no, not at all. I, I think yeah. that's that's generally that's. I think it's a good problem to have <laughs> uh, to get everything on the table so that you know no rock is left unturned. 
because in the same way that you, you know companies have uh, maybe and, and I saw this in a previous company where I was working companies sprinting into the cloud thinking like oh you know I just download and that's it right like and then we just start rolling with it and then you get these exorbitant you know cloud bills oh why am I right. being charged so much because well, you you have cloud tech but you don't have a cloud culture and so right. with Kubernetes I think those are also similar questions that are coming to, going to come yeah. into play yeah um, absolutely yeah absolutely and I think too is also on the training side as we you know we're growing we're adding new people. And some people come with you know, limited Kubernetes knowledge, and, and you know, having run something on your laptop, is, you know, a couple times, it seems easy. But in, when you sort of dive into the next level of detail, there's there's you know a lot of things that could go wrong, and that you need to sort of be aware of to run a more sophisticated kind of application on top of Kubernetes. You know, everyone can run everyone can run a stateful set a stateless uh, set of nginx, right? Uh, you know, it's when you're doing more complicated things that you know, extra knowledge and skill come into play. Yep, completely agree. Anyway, Chris, that's all the all the time we have for uh, all the time we have for today. But right. thank you very much. I do have to ask one final question though. Sure. If it were, we did have a battle royale once where uh, someone compared. <laughs> <laughs> someone compared I think I know where this is going. <laughs> a little bit of foreboding when you use the word battle royale, but it was it, it was his decision. Our great community member Tim Vandekier, um, yeah. he he addressed. Argo versus Airflow and looking at, you know, in his experience, you know, data ops, uh, applying both these technologies. And once again, it's it's one person's perspective. We're, we're at, you know, if it could be possible to get some of the, the Kafka folks that we've had and to be able to have a very, you know, civil uh, call and dialogue <laughs> as, right. as, as much as possible, would that be something you that you could find interesting Be as someone who wrote a book about this? Sure, I'd be happy to, to have that discussion. I think it's healthy, right, to, to talk about these things and, and you know, um, and you know, Pulsar owes a lot of debt, you know, to to Kafka. So I have great respect for the you know, the projects and the community and, and that. Uh, but you know, that doesn't mean we can't do things better, right? So we should always be trying trying to improve in both sides, right? Absolutely. Well, we will sure. have to hang on to that as uh, as a future date. But in the meantime, yep. thank you very much. A very very complete presentation. Um, and it, uh, once again, for folks that, that maybe joined a little bit late, we linked uh, Chris's book in there. We'll have the slides as well, too, for, for people that got here a little bit late. Talk's obviously going to be on YouTube. Thank you very much, Chris. Looking forward to talking to you soon. You're welcome.